0: Why did catastrophe descend on the British Army on the first day of the Battle of the Somme in 1916? 57,000 casualties in one day. The worst day in the history of the British Army. In this episode, we tell the story of something really remarkable. It shows that had the British learnt from the two years of trench warfare 1914 to 1916, the needless slaughter of the Somme would have been avoided.
1: Now we've seen that through basic errors of planning, the British found themselves in the worst strategic positions along the front. They'd left it too late to have tanks ready for the start of the battle. And above all, the commander-in-chief on the Somme, Douglas Haig, ignored the most basic rule of attack.
0: The length of the front to be assaulted had to be calculated according not to the number of men available, but to the number of heavy guns. It was something his senior commander, Henry Rawlinson, had grasped, something the French had understood completely, and their attack on the Somme, limited to just nine miles, was, as we saw in our last discussion, a brilliant success. Capturing every objective, breaking through into open country with few casualties, 1,500 on that first day.
1: But Haig had very few effective heavy guns, enough perhaps for a limited assault on about four miles of the German front. Brushing aside those who plainly warned him, he nonetheless imposed a plan to break right through the heavily armed German defences across an entire 16 miles. It was ludicrous, irresponsible. It could only lead to the slaughter of his own men.
0: Another fundamental weakness of the British army was that its senior officers could not be told what to do. The code of the English gentleman officer was that he could be encouraged but not commanded that any army can believe this is a viable approach to planning, above all in wartime beggars' belief. Usually it led to chaos, the failure to do anything systematically. Paradoxically, though, on the Somme, it led to something quite remarkable.
1: Hello, good to see you at the History Café. This is where we come to talk about historical stories everyone knows. We want to try out some new ideas. I'm Penelope Middlebone,
0: And I'm John Roseback
1: and we're revisiting stories that have got
0: stuck in our collective memory but just don't look quite right to us
1: So get yourself a coffee, pull up a chair and let's see what happens The British forces at the very southern end of the line on the Somme, directly alongside the French, were commanded by Major Generals Ivor Maxey and John Shea. Together, they were commanded by Shea's brother-in-law, Lieutenant General Walter Congreve. Now, Ivor Maxey is a forgotten hero of the Somme. He'd decided long ago in the Boer War that sending men against machine guns was useless. He'd been stationed on the Somme since mid-1915, admired his new volunteer soldiers, which was rare in the British army, and spoke good French, which was even more rare. Maxi also made it his business to learn from the French commanders, which, according to William Philpot, the historian of Anglo-French relations during the war, was completely unheard of. In particular, Maxey admired the French general on the Somme, Ferdinand Foch. He called him tellingly, quotes, "...a man with brains, essentially." Couldn't say that of Hay, could you?
0: Long before the Battle of the 1st of July, 1916, Maxey sent his artillery commander, Alan Brooke, to learn gunnery from the French. Brooke, in fact, would later be the Chief of Imperial General Staff, the top British army general in the Second World War. In his unpublished papers after the war, Brooke remembered escorting Major Pierre Ehring, the French liaison officer and an expert in artillery, around the British positions. He carefully noted Ehring's advice. One seventy-five mm gun to each ten to fifteen meters of front. Keep up a continuous rate of fire of some four rounds per gun per minute, increasing the range by increments of fifty meters at periods corresponding with the predicted rate of advance of the infantry. You got this. So Brooke discussed all this and other French ideas with his artillery officer, the Canadian Brigadier General Casimir von Straubensee. No, he was Canadian. Together, they began constructing their plans along the mathematical lines of what the French called the scientific method. They built up colour-coded barrage maps in the way the French had taught them. Before the day of the attack, they would concentrate on knocking out the enemy's heavy guns. On the day, they would use the rolling barrage, which meant raining shells in front of the German line and then advancing the shelling 50 metres every 90 seconds, just ahead of the attacking troops. Now, there's some dispute as to who originally came up with this idea of what was later called a creeping barrage. But as we shall see, the key to making it work was to time its lifts correctly so that the enemy has no chance to emerge from cover before your troops arrive. The French had cracked it and Brooke sensibly took their advice.
1: But Ivor Maxey had done much more than send his artillery commander to learn from the French. He'd also listened to Major Christopher Baker Carr, who, as we saw in the second episode in the series, had set up the British machine gun school and knew how to use machine guns properly. And was widely ignored
0: by the British officers in the rest of the army.
1: Maxey also trained his men to use the new Stokes mortars. This was a gun for firing small shells powerful enough to take out German machine guns and inflict significant damage at close range on the deep German dugouts. It was quick, easy to use and light enough for advancing troops to carry it with them. It became one of the best weapons of the First War. Wilfred Stokes had demonstrated his invention to the army in April 1915. But you guessed... Well,
0: like every other innovation, they
1: were offered the generals rejected it. Stokes was infuriated. He'd already spent £3,000 of his own money, which was a lot in those days. Well, it took Lloyd George to break the deadlock. In June 1915, Lloyd George ordered 100,000 of them and told the army to use them. And since the generals wouldn't cough up the cash, Lloyd George got a wealthy Indian Maharaja to pay. You couldn't pick it up, could you? The Stokes mortars finally arrived on the front in March 1916, just in time for a few soldiers to be trained to use them before the Battle of the Somme.
0: Maxie was clearly an exceptional man for the British Army, able to spot the potential of new technology and to understand how to use it. Extraordinarily, Maxie installed two enormous Livens flamethrowers. These were horrifying underground mechanical monsters that took weeks to build, laying 150 yards of oil pipeline in tunnels under no man's land the flamethrower itself was constructed secretly under the soil just yards short of the German lines. Moments before the attack, it would burst out of the ground and spray the German trenches with a tonne of burning oil in 10 seconds. Horrific, Three times. Horrifying. But if the aim is to kill as many Germans as possible and to lose as few of your own men as possible, then the Livens flamethrower was a very effective weapon.
1: Maxi also commissioned engineers to dig two Russian saps. These were tunnels, like the French had constructed, leading under no man's land and coming out just in front of the German front line. They were called Russian saps because they'd first been used in the Crimean War. They'd been around for a very long time. They were opened up with a blast shortly before the advance, destroying some of the German front line and creating craters where British machine guns or mortars could be set up. So these saps allowed men to get across the dangerous open ground not only to achieve initial surprise, but to protect them from any German shelling once the attack was underway.
0: Maxi's engineers also used pushpipes, a way of blasting trenches very quickly through no man's land once the attack was underway, so that the men had somewhere to take cover. Finally, in contrast to many of the other corps commanders, Maxi shared as much information as he dared with the men in the trenches, bearing in mind that some might be captured, so you had to be careful.
1: A devastating weakness in the British army was the gentlemanly code that officers of Maxey's rank could not be ordered what to do. It meant the British army was almost incapable of quick decisions and innovation. But in Maxey's case on the Somme, it paid off. He could do his own thing. Historian Peter Barton describes the results as spectacular. <laughs> Ready to attack at the southern end of the British line on the Somme was 13 Corps. Its 18th Division was commanded by Major General Ivor Maxey. He was an intelligent and innovative officer who exploited the army's usually counterproductive understanding that men of his rank could not be ordered around. Maxey did what he wanted. He had his men using all the new weapons that were available. Above all, he had his artillery commander, Alan Brooke, learn the French scientific method of gunnery.
0: On the first day of the battle, Maxey started moving some of his men out at 6.30 under cover of the continuing bombardment. Some people say 6 o'clock. At 7.27, mines detonated at the apex of the enemy line. Maxey's men then took just eight minutes to clear their own trenches. Allen Brooks' bombardment had been so effective that the Germans had already abandoned their front line. Private Robert Cude, who was among Maxie's men that day, later remembered the strange feeling running towards the possibility
1: of death and yet laughing, joking, noticing what a beautiful day it was. A few German machine guns and their crews had somehow survived in old mine craters. Contrary to expectation, noted Private Cude, we were not going to have things all our own way. The Germans began, in Cude's words, a frightful carnage. It meant that Maxi's men were delayed just long enough for the Germans to get some kind of defence together in their support trench. But even that couldn't hold. By now, the Germans were disorganised and disoriented. The soldiers facing Maxie's men had only arrived a couple of days before, rushed in to replace the frontline companies that had been wiped out by Allenbrook's successfully calculated and targeted bombardment. There was heavy fighting in the trenches, but Maxie's soldiers were pressing forward
0: capturing a German general, many other prisoners. They reached their next objective, known as the Pommier Redoubt. It was a heavily defended German headquarters. Here, in fact, the German wire still needed to be cut. But Maxey had trained his men well, and taking the initiative, they worked out that they could manoeuvre a light Lewis machine gun around to where it could force the Germans out. Now, the Lewis was an excellent assault weapon invented back in 1911 by an American army colonel, although... Ugh, Of course, it had taken the British army until October 1915, before it would adopt it. Maxey had trained his men to use it. Using the Lewis gun, it took his men an hour, but they captured the redoubt. By midday, Maxey's men had suffered a number of casualties, but like the French to the south, they had taken all
1: their objectives. Between Maxi and the French, at the very southern end of the British line, was the 30th Division. It was almost entirely made up of Powell's regiments from Liverpool and Manchester.
0: Now, this is important. The Powells were volunteer regiments of men who'd been allowed to enlist in the very early days of the war, with a promise that they would train and fight together as a unit. They were men from one particular neighbourhood, sometimes one particular works. To some extent, they'd even been able to choose their own junior officers. Now, of all the volunteer soldiers who had joined the British Army in those early days, the Pals regiments were regarded by the old regulars as the most despicable. You can imagine. They were bound to be completely unreliable. Just an amateur shambles. Just the men from a few streets with their own officers. Hopeless.
1: Commanding the Liverpool and Manchester Pals at the southern end of the British line was Major General John Shea. He shared much of Ivermax's approach to the battle, His section had four Russian saps, those tunnels, for men to crawl through. The rest of his men left the trenches five minutes before 7.30 and ran across no man's land. It all seemed so easy, wrote Lance Corporal Quinn, much easier than when we'd practised it behind the line. Well, it was easy, partly because here the German barbed wire had been cut beforehand with guns and trench mortars borrowed from the French. Shays pals got to the first German trench before the Germans had even had time to leave their dugouts. So the pals left the Germans imprisoned underground for the following waves to round up. Then they pushed on to the German support trench and then to their reserve trench. Planes were patrolling above and as soon as any of the German artillery guns opened up, it was spotted and hit by counter-battery fire. Shade's
0: version of the rolling artillery barrage wasn't particularly well designed, just four big lifts at long intervals. But the Pals were now moving so fast that they actually had to wait for the barrage to lift before they could move forward, which gave them time to rest in comparative safety. So (laughs) as much by luck as by judgment, the barrage turned out to be very effective. By 8.30 in the morning, the Pals had reached their first objective, a network of German trenches that were now so shattered they they were barely recognisable. The Germans had already fled, run like the devil, as Lance Corporal Quinn put it. Chez's pals waited for reserves to arrive, and then they pushed on. For Montauban, the village, perhaps you remember that the Germans had occupied, but had now had to be evacuated under the bombardment. There, the German commander, Oberst Leutnant Badel, recorded that the combined British and French artillery bombardment had systematically done its work. We were, he wrote,
1: shot to pieces. The Manchester pals finally walked into the ruins of the streets, firing after the running Germans, taking over what had become, in historian William Philpott's words, a shattered ghost town. Montauban had been the largest village on the whole battlefront. Some of the Germans had taken refuge in a trench
0: just beyond the village, and here the Manchester Pals found themselves facing another machine gun. Eventually, they were forced into hand-to-hand fighting, using their bayonets. But still, the Germans could not halt, and it was their last line of defence.
1: Shay's pals now turned southeast to La Briqueterie, a factory with ominous buildings and chimneys. Another half hour of accurate heavy artillery fire, and the Germans were beaten here too. Their commanding officer, Oberst Leibrock, and his team were now trapped in a dugout. The British were throwing grenades down the steps, while deep inside, Leibruck was desperately ringing for reinforcements. He was told there was no chance of any, and he took the decision to surrender.
0: So, on that first day of the Somme, in an achievement narrated by historian William Philpott, but hardly noticed by other historians, Shay's collection of amateur pals had taken all of their objectives.
1: At lunchtime, on the first day of the Battle of the Somme, British units from 13 Corps at the southern end of the line were served with a hot meal in their newly captured German trenches. They'd watched hundreds of Germans, as one captain recorded, quotes, fleeing in hopeless confusion. A few German artillerymen, beyond the village of Montauban, were still trying to get their guns trained on the new British positions, but low-flying aircraft strafed them with machine gun fire, and once the Pals arrived, the Germans fled, leaving three of their big guns behind. They were the first German guns captured on the Somme, proof that the Pals had reached the very deepest German positions. By the evening of that first day, all the British wounded on this part of the line were getting medical help and the men were receiving their letters from home. Just like the French to their south, they'd taken all their objectives.
0: Now, this is very much not the story we're usually told by the first day of the Somme. It proved beyond any possible contradiction that it was completely possible to break through the German defences. What was required was the use of a range of innovative technology and intelligent preparation, and planning done with the men on the ground. But the key above all had been the systematic accuracy of the artillery. Now, some historians are inclined to write off the British success in the South as a fluke. 13 Corps had, well, well, they cheated. They'd learned from the the French. They'd even been assisted by the French artillery on the day. But that's exactly the point. If you used your heavy guns correctly, then an entrenched defence was very possible to break. The British had been assisted by the highly trained, well-maintained, ruthlessly accurate French heavy guns, ranging, in fact, over the southern British sector as well as their own. After all, the French didn't want to be shelled by German guns on the British sector of the line because the British lacked the firepower to knock them out. The French commander, Fernand Foch, the man with brains essentially, had correctly worked it all out.
1: In fact, the French guns were so effective, they were also able to give assistance to the British Fifteen Corps further north on Maxey's left. Here, too, innovative commanders used a Russian sap, a tunnel, low flying aircraft, and a well timed rolling barrage. Their soldiers were able to jump into German frontline trenches while the Germans were still sheltering underground. Here, the British artillery, you recall, we talked about it last time, had used twice as much ammunition as they'd been allocated. As a result, much of the barbed wire had been cut and many of the German heavy guns destroyed. So here, too, the British took many of their first day's objectives. Well, the next day,
0: the 2nd of July, 1916, the British on this part of the Somme in the south were staring at two miles of open country, virtually empty of Germans. Alongside them, the French were ready to press forward. It was an extraordinary situation, one which bizarrely never gets mentioned in accounts of the battle. Perhaps it's because it reveals so very sharply the reasons for the failure of the rest of the British on the Somme. Calculate the width of your attack according to the strength of your guns and the density of the enemy defences and a breakthrough can be achieved.
1: But now the breakthrough needed to be exploited. After two years of standing around feeding their horses, the cavalry's moment had arrived. They almost could have ridden for Douai, 70 miles behind the German lines, as Haig, in his most fantastical plans, had originally hoped. There was the possibility... An outside chance, perhaps, that it might be the beginning of the end of the war.
0: But after all his ludicrous bluster before the attack, the British Commander-in-Chief, Douglas Haig, refused to advance.
1: Refused to advance.
0: It was another pattern that would repeat itself again and again into 1918. The truth on the Somme in 1916 was that Rawlinson and Haig had both been taken completely by surprise by the success of those amateur Pals regiments and the divisions alongside them. And they had apparently not even taken into consideration the possibility that the French might make any progress. Nobody had made any plans about what to do. And of course, nobody on the front line was permitted to take the
1: initiative on their own. The breakthrough had been made, but nothing was done to exploit it. But besides these systemic failures in the organisation of the British Army, there was something much, much worse. Further north... The rest of the British line had been overtaken by an unimaginable tragedy. Here,
0: the old, inaccurate British guns, mostly firing useless shrapnel with their dud shells and ill-chosen fuses, had little impact on the German dugouts and artillery. Like Haig himself, the core artillery commanders on this part of the line had ignored the advice of the overall artillery commander, Noel Curley Birch. Birch later wrote that they were nothing but a bunch of amateurs. But even if they had listened, the front that Haig had decided to attack was so ridiculously overextended, about four times the length he actually had the guns to deal with, that catastrophe was inevitable.
1: The German diaries collected by historian Jack Sheldon suggest that the days of endless bombardment at this end of the line had left the Germans ragged and weary, yes, but largely unharmed and determined to pay the British back in kind. Leutnant Matthaus Gerster, who was towards the middle of the line, recorded the German astonishment at what was happening. Have Had the Tommies gone off their heads? Did they believe they could wear us down with shrapnel? We who had dug ourselves deep into the earth. The very thought made the infantry smile. While some German frontline trenches were obliterated, other parts were not touched at all. The work of constructing dugouts even continued during the bombardment. Once the bombardment lifted at 7:30 on July the 1st the Germans were ready.
0: We could spend dark and tearful hours trying to relive the horror of that day, the 1st of July, 1916, in the northern half of the line on the Somme. I've been a number of times to the battlefield, and it seems to me to be one of the defining days in British history. It was the moment that exposed the arrogance, incompetence and inhumanity of institutions that are riddled with beliefs in British individualism, exceptionalism and class. They still exist, and the leaders and those who support them should be taken again and again through the hours of that day. They should be marched to the fields and hillsides where they happened, until they have learned that our society does not have to be like this, and that saying they are doing the best they can will never be an acceptable excuse for nonchalance and blindness and self-seeking and arrogance that causes suffering and death.
1: In the northern part of the line, the officers at corps level ignored all Birch's advice on the rolling barrage. Three Corps lifted their barrage in six massive jumps miles ahead of the infantry, giving the Germans plenty of time to come out of their dugouts and fix up their machine guns. Ten Corps lifted its barrage from the German front line directly to the second, well, it's nearly a mile in between. The infantry couldn't possibly cover that distance, and so the Germans here also came out and were waiting with their machine guns. At the very northern end of the front... The eight Corps barrage lifted and moved hopelessly far away ten full minutes before the attack had even started. It then made six lifts, assuming the infantry would advance at a rate of 50 yards a minute. The result was that for three out of the five British Corps climbing out of their trenches on the 1st of July, there was no effective artillery cover at all.
0: Let's just pause briefly at a few points along that terrible and scarred line that runs from Mamet in the south to Serres in the north. At Mamet, the Germans had placed a machine gun in a shrine in the village cemetery. Very famously, Captain Duncan Martin, commanding a company of the 9th Devonshires, had made a model to show exactly the carnage the machine gun would cause if it were not destroyed in the bombardment. It wasn't. Martin was a lowly captain and his warning was, of course, overruled. The Devonshires were ordered forward. Martin is buried at the site of the trench from where he set off that morning along with most of his men. One of them was Lieutenant William Hodgson, whose poem, Before Action, had been published two days before. It ends By all delights that I shall miss, help me to die, O Lord.
1: The Germans had turned the little village of Fricourt into a fortress. Here, the account written by two members of a German machine gun crew talk of a leisurely breakfast of coffee and biscuits, beef and rice, before fixing up their gun and firing 20,000 bullets at the advancing British infantry. The only shell that had hit their dugout had been a dud, and they had carried it out and dumped it in a trench. It was near here that
0: Lieutenant Alfred Frick of the German Field Artillery recalled, quote, under the illusion that the dreadful bombardment had smashed all resistance, the British troops had advanced in close order. Our remaining 15 undamaged machine guns poured fire into the oncoming columns, so that the assaulting forces went down like ripe corn before the scythe. In consequence, the enemy casualties were simply enormous. Indeed, in front of Free Corps, the 10th West Yorkshires lost 90% of their men. Near Thiebval, the Irish of the 36th Enniskillans initially took the Schwaben Redoubt, a strongly fortified German position. I remember an Irish teacher telling me it was because the Irish are mad, were probably drunk,
1: had ignored orders to walk towards the German lines. The truth was less romantic. The Irish had been assisted by accurate French artillery, since this was a key location for the entire front. Under the morning mist, the Enniskillens had already been within 50 yards of the Germans when the barrage lifted. Even so, the success they scored was desperate and daring. The Germans launched counterattacks while the British reserves waited for orders to advance.
0: But nobody, of course, back in the British trenches had the authority to depart in any way from the pre-prepared plan. After 12 hours. No order to advance had come, and after a day of gruesome fighting, the Irish were forced back.
1: Or at least those few reinforcements who had at last joined them at the German redoubt were forced back. By then, almost all the Irish were dead.
0: The shudders and sacrifices of that day on the Somme still colour and shape loyalist politics in Northern Ireland, subject to which we must come back. Here, the Germans lost 79 men, The British lost 5,482. At Beaumont-Amel, the Germans had sat out the bombardment, almost completely untouched, dug deep into the rocky side of what's known as Y Ravine. I've always assumed it was an old quarry. They had plenty of time to get to the parapet and set up their guns. A British soldier watching from a shell hole recalled, I curse the generals for their useless slaughter. They had no idea what was going on.
1: Here and at the village of La Boiselle, the British trenches became so choked with the wounded that reserves were ordered to jump out and in advance instead in the open ground, which was suicide, through a storm of bullets and shrapnel. The tyne at La Boiselle and the Newfoundlers at Beaumont-Amel were killed in their hundreds before they reached their own front line. There's a well-known photograph of the tyne running with their heavy packs and rifles sloped over the open ground before La Boiselle. The village was still about a hundred yards away.
0: In fact, it was here that nearly a century later a retired major pointed out to me the German gun emplacements still visible in the discoloured soil on the slopes a mile ahead. Standing where we were, near where the Tynesiders were running, we wouldn't have stood a chance.
1: We could linger a long time in these terrible places. Go when you can and stand there yourself. But the heart of the story of the Battle of the Somme on the 1st of July 1916 is in the fields below the village of Serre. Today few visitors go there. We've been there, and you really should.
0: Now, Serre was the very northern end of the British attack. That's important because the ends of the line are the most exposed, since the German artillery for miles further along can add their fire to the guns directly in front. As it turned out, the southern end of the British line was protected by the French and their excellent artillery. To give the northern end some protection, the British launched a diversionary attack a little bit further north at Gomcourt. But it was at some distance and it was largely ineffective. So the British attack at Serres, the northern end of the main line, was uniquely exposed.
1: What historians don't seem to have pointed out is that the battalions placed at both of the ends of the front line were Powell's regiments. The men, you recall, who'd volunteered in the early weeks of the war and were allowed to form companies with their mates and have a say in choosing their own junior officers. And as we said, the PALS regiments were regarded by the army regulars as beneath contempt.
0: At the southern end, it was the PALS from Liverpool and Manchester under the command of John Shea. At the northern end, it was the Accrington PALS, the Grimsby Chums, the Sheffield PALS, the men from Leeds, Bradford, Barnsley, Halifax, and Durham.
1: They were all thrown together and told to stand at the end of the line. Of course, Senior regular officers like Haig expected that in reality the Pals would achieve nothing. It would of course be the gentleman officers from the smart public schools who would get on with defeating the Germans with the real soldiers. So it couldn't be clearer that at the Battle of the Somme, the Pals, whole
0: streets and communities you remember of working class husbands and fathers were to be deliberately sacrificed at the two exposed ends of the line.
1: As it turned out, the Manchester and Liverpool pals at the southern end were between Maxey's 18th division and the French and were carried along with them in a startling and brilliantly conducted breakthrough that the British army has done its best to forget. The story at Serres, at the north, was very different.
0: You can still stand on the line of the British front trench at Serres. You find yourself looking uphill toward the German positions – Over the previous 12 months, the French had launched five attacks up this slope. Every time they had been beaten back, the Germans had constructed an impregnable position at the top of the hill. Sending the Pals to attack it has to be regarded as an act of cynical cowardice.
1: Bizarrely, every detail of their supposed advance had been planned. Well, it was a complete fantasy, in which they would capture four German lines in 20 minutes, storm the village within an hour and 20 and then marched triumphantly on through line after line of German entrenchments. Haig had prescribed a total advance of nearly a mile and three quarters at one single effort.
0: Just look at the context and you have to conclude that it was either the product of an insane mind or intended to be nothing but a suicidal diversion. Something to turn at least some German guns away from the real business with the regular army soldiers in the centre of the line of attack. From his optimism before the attack and from the energy that went into the plans, it even appears that their corps commander, Lieutenant General Sir Aylmer Hunter-Weston, didn't realise what was happening. It's almost as if he too were being set up. He, after all, had been among Haig's loudest critics.
1: Hiding at the bottom of the slope, the Pals faced at least 10 machine guns that had survived the bombardment. Now, each machine gun was capable of firing 600 bullets a minute.
0: They would, as a British major explained to me, standing exactly in this spot, fire in cross patterns, diagonally raking no man's land. By far the most effective use of this weapon.
1: Meanwhile, like the other commanders in the north of the line, Hunter Weston had directed his heavy artillery to give only limited attention to knocking out the big German guns. Historians Robin Pryor and Trevor Wilson reckon that in this northern section there were therefore at least 240 heavy German artillery guns still in action. And there were yet more away to the north beyond the end of the British line, but well within range of the attacking soldiers.
0: These German heavy guns had begun firing at four o'clock in the morning, long before the British advance even began they'd apparently been completely unconcerned that by giving away their positions, they would be hit by British counter-battery shells.
1: The British, after all, had hit very little over the previous eight days. They hadn't even succeeded in cutting much of the barbed wire. Even before the attack began, German high-explosive shells began pummeling the British front line and communication trenches.
0: Brigadier General Hubert Rees, a charterhouse boy who'd been put in charge a few days earlier when the Pals' usual Brigadier General was taken
1: ill... Perhaps he knew what was coming?
0: Hmm. ...told the Pals that they outnumbered the Germans and that, quote, the honour of the North Country rests in your hands. Well, Rees was from Wales and he would spend the attack in a bunker 10 feet below ground. What he didn't tell them was that he thought Hunter Weston's battle plan, which in fact had grown to 365 pages, was a, quote, terrible document.
1: The Pals' Irish Major General, that was Robert Wanless O'Gowan, a man in whom Henry Rawlinson had no faith, went one further.
0: I see why they put him there.
1: He really did tell the Pals as they were making their way to the front trench in preparation for going over, Good luck, men. There's not a German left in their trenches. Our guns have blown them to hell.
0: Everybody, including O'Gowan himself, must have known that he was lying
1: The Accrington Pals,
0: the Sheffield City Pals and the Barnsley Pals were sent out to lie in no man's land under cover of the artillery barrage well before 7.30 in the morning. As Private Pearson of the Leeds Pals recalled, he could not believe that their officers had made them go over, loaded with their enormous packs, not at dawn, but in broad daylight.
1: And then to their utter horror, the artillery barrage was lifted, not at 7.30, but at 7.20, So for ten minutes, they lay in no man's land, protected only by fire from some light field guns and trench mortars. And they were facing yards upon yards of uncut German barbed wire.
0: Yeah, the Germans had repaired what gaps there had been during the night. And beyond the wire, the Pals watched in terror as the German teams brought out their heavy machine guns and got them set up.
1: Sergeant Charles Moss in the Durham Pals recorded noticing that the Germans were in their shirt sleeves. And then, when they were ready, the guns opened up. Instead of spraying fire as they usually did, they took careful aim at individual pals and shot them in short bursts where they lay. Tack tuck, tuck, tack tack By 7.28, two minutes before the attack was supposed to begin, one battalion already had no officers left.
0: And then a quite extraordinary thing occurred. At 7.30, back in the British trenches, the officers, watching the carnage going on yards in front of them, blew their whistles for the attack to begin. And because the officers in this sector had no faith in these northern working-class bank clerks and bricklayers, they'd actually instructed them to, quote, advance at steady pace toward the Germans. They were, in other words, to stand up and walk. Hunter Weston had set it out in capital letters, all units must push forward resolutely. Not at the double, he explained, but
1: walking. Walking. There was, as Sergeant Moss recorded, quotes, to be no turning back. All officers had the authority to shoot anyone who stopped. Anyone who even stopped. Or tried to turn back. So at
0: Sayre, the ghastly myth of the song was completely true. Whether it's a tribute to their courage, as Reese later said, or their fear of being shot by their own officers, I leave it to you to reflect. But the pals stood up, struggled to their feet with their enormous packs, as the shrapnel rained down and the bullets ripped through and began to walk toward the German machine guns.
1: By now, the full force of the heavy German artillery guns was also falling on the British front line and support trenches. But on the whistle, the Leeds, Bradford and Durham pals climbed over the parapet, took, as an eyewitness reported, a moment to align themselves and marched into the storm of death.
0: It's hard to imagine a greater act of negligence by the British officers, a war crime against their own men. And yet there is worse. Before the attack, the King's own Yorkshire Light Infantry had laboriously dug and constructed 17 of those Russian saps, tunnels under no man's land, along the British front.
1: It was Rawlinson who'd commissioned the saps, a total of nearly two miles of them. But of course... Of course... He'd had to leave it to his corps and divisional commanders to do what they wanted with them, because nobody could tell an English gentleman what to do. Five
0: out of the 17 Russian saps that had been dug were at Serres, more than any other sector. After all, it was the most dangerous stretch of all. They had been constructed specifically to get the pals safely across underneath no man's land before the machine guns could open up.
1: Now the engineers at the front end of two of the saps at Serre blew them open during the night before the attack and set up Stokes mortars at the end, ready. Then they looked back in utter horror. Instead of being
0: in the tunnels, ready to surprise the enemy, the pals were walking slowly
1: above ground. One of the engineers, waiting at the front of one of these saps, Captain A.W. Donald, watched as the lead's pals advanced. Quote, the enemy machine guns were so ready and active that all... swept down if only he had had a machine gun donald said he could have killed anyone in the german front position from the head of his tunnel the german machine gunners would never have even got into position but no soldiers came to join him the pals hadn't been told about the tunnels they hadn't been told
0: on the 1st of July, only six of the 17 tunnels were used and all but one of them were used by Maxey and Shea, the divisional commanders at the southern end of the line. The rest of the corps and division commanders simply ignored them. The pals in front of Serre had never had any need to lie in no man's land or to walk in full view of the machine guns. They could have been in the German trenches before the Germans even knew the attack had started. They could have prevented the machine guns that killed them from ever being assembled. But nobody told them.
1: In all, Eight Corps lost half its men dead and wounded that day. But the worst of its casualties were among the pals at Serre. Brigadier General Rees reckoned he'd sent 2,600 men over the top and that by the end of the day only 550 were left. The Leeds pals lost 539 out of 750. 230 of them killed.
0: 1,111 Accrington Pals had enlisted in 10 days back in September 1914. Bricklayers, engineers, apprentice cabinet makers, a painter and decorator who was the father of six, neighbours, friends. Within 20 minutes of the start of the attack, 235 of them were dead. 135 of them were never found. Another 350 were wounded.
1: A British artillery observer, Lance Corporal Berry, Remembered that he wept as he watched. By the afternoon, there were only fifty of the Bradford pals left, so few that nobody has been able to reconstruct what happened to the rest. One account records that they were being shot as they were climbing out of their own trench before seven thirty.
0: Let's let a German machine gunner, Otto Lies, have the last word on what happened at Serre that day. Quotes, Evening falls. The attack is dead. Our own casualties are severe. The enemy casualties are unimaginable. From no man's land comes one great groan. First aid men hasten around the area. A complete British medical team with many stretcher bearers and unfurled Red Cross flags appears from somewhere. It's a rare and deeply moving sight. Where to begin? Whimpering, moaning confronts them from almost every square metre. Our own first aiders, who are not required elsewhere, go forward to bandage the wounded and deliver the enemy carefully to their own people.